What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN. I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Well, what do you know? We made it to Friday. How about that? Welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN, the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. If you've got a question about the Catholic faith, this is the place to come. Here's your phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us in Madagascar, well, you'll want to dial 1 and then 205 271 2985. Let me give you that number again. 1-205-271-2985. And of course, you can always send us an email 24-7, the address ctc at ewtn.com, ctc at ewtn.com. All right, Charles Beery is our producer, Matt Kavinsky, our phone screener, Rich Jesse handling social media for the program. If you want to ask a question via YouTube, or Facebook. Well, how about this? We're streaming on both platforms right now. So you could just uh, put your question in the comments box if you would. Rich will see that. He'll send it to us here in the studio. Hopefully we can get your question answered on today's program. Again, the phone number 833-288-EWTN. Phones are wide open right now. I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Did I, did I tell you that I just talked to a guy from Madagascar <laughs> yesterday? Did you? I, I really did. You're on a uh, chat group, right? I've got a chat group. Yeah, exactly. We talked to folks from all over the world. And yesterday I was on with a fellow from Madagascar. Madagascar. That is so cool. And you spoke with some folks today, right? Oh, yeah. Today I was talking to two Moroccans and a Brazilian. Very cool. One of the things I do like about modern Internet connectivity. It's not all bad. It's not all bad. All right. Interesting question here from uh, John in Hendersonville, Tennessee. John says, I'm confused on the timeline between the birth of Jesus and his presentation in the temple on the eighth day to be circumcised. I thought Joseph had a dream shortly after the birth of Jesus to urgently take his family from Bethlehem to Egypt to avoid uh, persecution. Thanks, John. Yeah, thanks. So you're asking about the perennial difficulty of harmonizing the Gospels, right? And this has been a project undertaken by Catholic exegetes for 2,000 years. And in the ancient church, it was not uncommon for fathers of the church to publish what were called harmonies of the Gospels. And that is, they would they would line them all up and try to fit the chronologies together to tell a comprehensive, coherent story of the life of Jesus, incorporating data from all of them, and mm. try to account for, you know, the apparent gaps or overlaps or contradictions or what have you. Uh, you can find the same thing in um, in the modern theological genre of writing, or I should say the genre of modern theological writing known as the life of Christ. Okay. And so, you know, Fulton Sheen, for example, wrote A Life of Christ, and—, and um, Gordini wrote a life of Christ called the Lord, and uh, Pope Benedict, in his Jesus of Nazareth, it's not exactly the same genre, but it approaches that, you know, trying to give a comprehensive account of the person of Jesus that incorporates data from all of the Gospels. Uh-huh. Um, and you can do that. I mean, you can you can do that. Um, but there's, a, there's another perspective uh, that I think has been informed by higher criticism, which 
recognizes that each of the Gospels has a coherent narrative that it structures for rhetorical purposes uh, to have a particular effect. And so it's also important to read each Gospel individually as its own coherent work, recognizing that the Gospel writers are selective in their use of material. They're not each one attempting to give you the quote-unquote biography of Jesus. These are theological documents that tend to a particular theme and direction, and, and, and they, they, have di- they have divergent emphases. And so I think uh, my own preference is to read the Gospels in that way, to see what, you know, what does Mark have to tell me as Mark? Yeah. What does Luke have to tell me as Luke? Mm-hmm. What does Matthew have to tell me as Matthew? And, and let the writer function as a writer and, and read the Gospels at that level and not trouble my head so much about, you know, can I, can I work out the chronologies? Now, like I said, there, uh, I, I don't have the definitive answer to the mm-hmm. chronological problem, because I don't think the gospel writers themselves wrote with that in view. But there have been attempts. You can go read Augustine's Harmony of the Gospels if you want to, or go read, uh, you know, Fulton Sheen's uh, Life of Christ or whatever. And they and these are different writers that are trying to, to coordinate those different dates. Yeah, there's also a Bible timeline from Jeff Cavins. Um, sure, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. all right. And uh, John, thanks so much uh, for your email. Uh, fellow watching us on YouTube this afternoon is Blue Bear. And Blue Bear says that singer Tom Petty was given the last rites while he was dying. Uh, this is a little while back. He was not a Catholic. Tom was not. Is that permitted? I'm very happy for Tom. I'm a big fan of his. And that's from uh, Blue Bear watching us on YouTube today. Yeah, thanks. Appreciate the question. So uh, a Protestant, a baptized Protestant, who is in danger of death can receive uh, 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 the sacrament of confession and and uh, the sacrament of uh, Holy Communion hmm. and, um, and I believe uh, also Holy Anointing, which would be you know, more or less the last rites, um, if he has Catholic faith in the sacraments and is properly disposed. So whether or not it was appropriate for Tom Petty to receive those Catholic sacraments would have been the priest's judgment as to whether or not Tom Petty had Catholic faith in the sacraments and was properly disposed. And that, of course, is something that I am not... um, equipped to speak to at this moment. Yeah, yeah. Okay, very good. Uh, But hopefully he is no longer free-falling. Hopefully not. We had a priest friend over for dinner last night, and he wanted to show me a video of the uh, traveling Wilburys. And, of course, uh, Tom Petty was part of that, along with George Harrison and Jeff Lynn of the ELO. And and, uh, And Roy Orbison, right? Roy Orbison was there, or was not there. But this particular video was, like, after he passed, so they, they had an empty chair. On the set. How nice. Which I thought was very, very cool. And uh, Big Bear, Big Bear, Blue Bear, we hope that is helpful for you. Thanks for watching us today on YouTube. If uh, you would like to send us an email for a future show, we're ready to get it. The address is ctc at ewtn.com, ctc at ewtn.com. Excuse me, a little frog in the throat here. Uh, You can always send us those emails. Uh, We try to tackle a couple each uh, of our shows, and then once a month or so we'll do a mailbag program and uh, handle a whole bunch of emails. Again, the address, ctc at ewtn.com. All right, in just a moment we're going to get to uh, Jerry calling in from Springfield, Missouri. Also, Robert in Bellevue, Nebraska. A couple of open lines just for you at 833-288-EWTN. If there's a question on your mind, don't wait till Monday. Let's get it taken care of today. 833-288-3986. Call to communion with Dr. David Anders here on EWTN. Stay with us.
Welcome back. It's called to communion on this Friday afternoon here on EWTN. Our phone number 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Here's something wonderful now available from EWTN's religious catalog. It is the Shroud of Turin with the Lord's Prayer Tapestry Rosary Pouch. This tapestry rosary pouch features the Shroud of Turin image on the front and the Our Father prayer on the reverse. It's four by six inches. Uh, A crucifix is also attached to the zipper. Very nice. It has a black finger loop, making it very easy to attach to a key ring, if you wish. This tapestry piece woven in Turkey. It works well for carrying your rosary or jewelry or coins or other small items. Again, the Shroud of Turin with the Lord's Prayer Tapestry Rosary Pouch. Available now at EWTNRC.com. Buy Catholic, shop Catholic, EWTNRC.com. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN, beginning today with Jerry, a first-time caller in Springfield, Missouri, listening on the great Catholic radio network. Hey there, Jerry. Happy Friday. What's on your mind today, sir? Yesterday, uh, Dr. David Anders, it was February the 1st. It was a second-to-last call. Uh A guy called in. And he, he was commenting on how God was amazed or God regretted something, something like that. And that Dr. Anders made the statement that, well, God doesn't have emotions. Well, that really rattled me. Well, is God not love? Does he not care about me? Does, does he not care about sin? You know, why did Jesus show up? I, I really can't process that. And, and I watched it again in the evening to really try to take it in context. I just can't figure out what that means. I mean, where do I go with that? Yeah, I'm sure. Thanks. I really appreciate the question. So, and I, and I, look, I recognize that that statement is jarring to people who have only ever thought of God in anthropomorphic terms. Um, and, uh, but this is the Catholic dogma, and I think it's a very rational one, and I think at the end of the day, it's a, for me at least, it's a far more spiritually fruitful doctrine than simply imagining God in anthropomorphic terms as if God had human emotions. So to take it at a very visceral level, it's patently obvious that God can't have emotions the way humans do because our emotions are a matter of neurotransmitters in the brain and, you know, they're uh, chemical responses to stimuli. And God, of course, doesn't have a brain and God doesn't have a body and God doesn't consist in neurotransmitters and God doesn't have sensible impressions and all the sorts of things that would go into fashioning emotional responses in a human being can't be predicated of God. But more profoundly, God can't change. God can't change. God can't be subject to change. Um, Because if something is subject to change, then that means that there's something outside of it that... um, uh, that is, uh, that's prior to it, that influences it. And, of course, God is the first cause of everything. So there's, there's nothing, there's no change, there's no motion that can exist um, anterior to, antecedent to God himself, right? And, uh, uh, you know, he's, there's, not, there's, there's nothing in virtue of which God is. God is that in virtue of which everything else is, right? Okay. He's the first cause. Sure. And an uncaused cause and an unchanging uh, cause. So uh, since emotion requires, uh, you know, passing from one mental state of consciousness to another one, uh-huh. God doesn't have passing states of consciousness. And in fact, you know, God, um, God's mode of knowledge is that he always knows everything in one permanent instant. And uh, 
again, that would be incompatible with the way that we process information, which is very mm. temporal and successive and all these sure. kinds of things. So sure. God, God doesn't have emotion. Um, it doesn't mean that God's not love. It doesn't mean that God's not love. But keep in mind, in Catholic theology, love's not an emotion. Love is not an emotion. Love is a disposition of the will to to be at union with the other and to and to desire the other's good, to mm. tend towards the other's good. Sure. And God, of course, is is a uh, um, uh, is good. God is the ultimate good uh, from which all good flows. And so, to encounter God is to encounter is to encounter goodness. And it's quite possible for the soul to turn towards the ultimate good or away from the ultimate good. There's a wonderful passage, beautiful passage in Augustine's Confessions where he he wrestles with these ideas that we're talking about. And I'd like to read it to you just because it's so beautiful. I've always found it quite moving. He says, what is it that I love in loving you, speaking to God? Not corporeal beauty, nor the splendor of time, nor the radiance of the light so pleasant to our eyes, not the sweetness of melodies, of songs of all kinds, nor the flagrant, fragrant smell of flowers and ointments and spices, not manna and honey, not limbs pleasant to the embrace of the flesh. I love not these things when I love my God. And yet, I love a certain kind of light, a sound, a fragrance, and food, and embrace in loving my God, who is the light, sound, fragrance, food, and embrace of my inner man." Where the light shines into my soul, which no place can contain, where that sounds which time snatches not away, where there is a fragrance which no breeze can disperse, where there is a food which no eating can diminish, and where that clings which no, uh, no satiety can sunder. This is what I love when I love my God. Mm. And uh, obviously, it's very poetic language, yeah, right? And it, yeah. it gets to the mystery of the the Godhead. We we understand that God is, and God mm. is the source of all that's good and true and beautiful, and is utterly desirable for His own sake. In fact, is the supreme good of the human soul. Um, and uh, to say that God has no emotion is not to say that He is less than human consciousness or affectivity or or love. Uh, but infinitely and transcendently greater than those things. Okay. Is that uh, helpful for you, Jerry? I think I'm going to sit on that for a while, and I thank you so very, very much. Thank you. Thank you so much. And uh, if you would like to check out the podcast, uh, probably about two or three hours from now, that'll pop up on EWTN.com forward slash radio, and then uh, click on Podcast Central, scroll down to Call to Communion, and you can listen to that whenever you wish. Hey, that opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Call to Communion on this Friday afternoon here on EWTN Radio. Going now to Robert, a first-time I'm caller in Bellevue, Nebraska, listening on the Great Spirit Catholic Radio. Hey there, Robert. What's on your mind today, sir? Hey, good afternoon, guys. Good afternoon, doctor. Um, my question is, okay, so we have various rites within the Catholic Church, right? So we have the Latin rite, and then you might have, like, the Greek rite or the Byzantine rite, the Ukrainian rite, those types. So my question is to you is that why is it that if we are considered the Latin church, why don't we have Latin incorporated in the masses anymore, whereas, say, our uh, Greek Catholic brothers and sisters and our Ukrainian Catholic brothers and sisters, they still use their languages within their divine liturgy. Um, I just feel that the Roman Catholic Church is losing its identity as the Latin church, because it seems like nobody uses Latin anymore. So my question is, 
Uh, what do you think about that? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So, first of all, I think you're mistaken on the on the language of worship in the Eastern Rite churches. So, if you go to say the Ruthenian Rite Church, and uh, uh, you're not going to you're not going to you know hear Old Church Slavonic in in Divine Liturgy. You're going to hear an English translation of the of the Liturgy of Saint John Chrysostom. If you go to Mass in the Maronite Rite in the United States, you're going to hear it in English. And in fact, they're they're quite insistent. The Maronite eparchy is very insistent that um, churches should use English because they don't want the second generation growing up in the United States to think of the liturgy as something the old folks did from the home country. They want it to think of as their liturgy and ah. you know culturally uh, accessible to them. So they use English, and you'll you'll find that in uh, the different rites of the Catholic Church, and and it's actually distinctive of the Eastern churches that they were very quick to put the liturgy into the vernacular of the countries. <clears throat> that were being evangelized. I mean, that's where Cyrillic comes from, right? St. Cyril and Methodius, who, yeah. who got permission from the Pope to put the liturgy in the language of the people to whom they were ministering. And, of course, the Latin rite is Latin because that was the vernacular of the culture to which the gospel was preached when they entered the uh, the western half of the Roman Empire. Um, now, <clears throat> as to uh, the Church losing touch with her patrimony— so I agree and I disagree. Um, uh, re- remember that all the typical editions of the of documents that are published, official documents in the Latin Church, are are given in Latin. So if you want the typical edition of the Catechism, it's in Latin. If you want uh, the Pope's pronouncements and encyclicals and so forth, they're published in Latin. If you want, um, you know, the uh, the Roman Missal, uh, the the typical edition is in Latin, and then it's translated into the various vernaculars. So. So Latin is still the, the 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 base text language of the Latin Church. Okay. Um, now, uh, and it is used in liturgy as well. So even in the ordinary rite of the Mass, uh, it is allowable to use Latin text. And I have attended um, or, uh, uh, Novus Ordo Masses where nearly the whole darn thing was in Latin, except for the reading of the scriptures mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and the prayers of the faithful. So Sometimes forth. here at the network, some, um, of, some of our broadcast masses are in primarily Well, we'll Latin. do the—EW Chen will often do the ordinary of the mass in Latin, but they'll typically do the Eucharistic prayer in the vernacular. Oh, okay. I remember okay. going to mass one time at a nearby convent retreat house. You know what I'm talking about. There was a visiting priest, and he uh-huh. did the whole kit and caboodle in Latin. Oh, wow. Know? And uh, and I remember it was um, it was funny because at the time my friend Father Lambert was still living, and of course he had grown up saying the mass in Latin. Yeah. You know, he did the Dominican rite in Latin, and uh, I remarked to him, I said, Father, did you notice that the priest said the canon of the mass in Latin? And Father Lambert, who was a purist and a perfectionist, says yes, and he used that darn pronunciation they teach them at the North American College. <laughs> He had little respect for American Latinists. You Talk know. about inside baseball. <laughs> right, wow. Exactly. So that, that is allowable as well. Um, but in terms of is the Latin church losing touch with some of its patrimony, there's no doubt about that. And, uh, and the Americans are largely to blame. Americans are largely to blame. At the Second Vatican Council, of course, all of the addresses, all of the speeches, all the texts and documents were, were produced in Latin. There was a, a famous moment in the council when um, Cardinal Frings from Austria got up to give an address in which he attacked the Holy Office that was led at that time by Ottaviani. And the address 
was written by his Peritus, his his theological assistant, in perfect Ciceronian Latin. Oh, wow. And that young Peritus is known to all of us today. His name was Joseph Ratzinger. <laughs> and so there was a great irony that Ratzinger had written a kind of frontal assault, an attack on the office that he would later become prefect of when he was made prefect of the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith. And Ottaviani, who was, who was blind, uh, listened to the remarks, listened to the speech that Cardinal Frings gave in Latin. Uh-huh. Couldn't take any notes, of course, because he was blind, but he paid you know, studious attention for the 30 minutes or an hour, however uh-huh. it went on. Uh-huh. And then he answered in perfect Latin, and refuted every point that Frings made. And they wow. would have these, you know, these lively debates in Latin. But then there were the American bishops who, if they had been in the 21st century, would have been doing the equivalent of playing on their iPhones. But they wow. didn't have those in 1962, you know, <laughs> whose Latin was quite poor and they couldn't follow the conversation. And so um, the, uh, the inability of the American church to keep up to speed with the, uh, with the international language of the church had something to do with its, uh, with its loss as a... Uh, as an actual spoken language of, of, uh, of, uh, of uh, doing business in, in ecclesiastical politics. Fascinating. Robert, uh, thanks so much for your uh, phone call today. Glad to hear that you're listening to uh, The Great Spirit Catholic Radio. It's called a communion here on EWTN. April is a first-time caller from Rochester listening on her Alexa device. Hello, April. What's on your mind today? Hi. Um, I have recently, I believe, been called to make rosaries. So I, I make rosaries, and we had the Arm of St. Jude come and visit our town in Rochester here a few weeks ago. And the rosaries were—I touched the rosaries that I made that I had at that time to the Arm of St. Jude, making them a third-class relic. Now, I'm taking a trip tomorrow to the, um, the Shrine of Fatima in Lewiston near Niagara Falls, there are a bunch, uh, there's a lot of relics there. If I touch the rosaries to multiple relics, does that make them, like, supercharged? Um, or, like, basically, I'm trying when I give them out, are they going to have, like, some of some of saints have healing powers, some of saints, that sort of thing. Are those all going to be on the rosaries, or how does it work? Is it the first one that it's touched to, or what? Yeah, you know, that's a great question that I've never had before, and I... And I don't know the answer, um, but I have an intuition about it, and my intuition is worth less than this cup of herbal tea that I'm drinking <laughs> right now, but I'll share it with you anyway. Okay. Um, so, first of all, <clears throat> that's not the usual practice. <clears throat> I will tell you that. I mean, the fact that I've never heard it before is testament to the fact that that's not generally what Catholics do. Um, I, uh, I don't think there's anything objectionable about it. I mean, you certainly could. Uh, no reason not to touch your rosary to as many first-class relics as you can run into. And thirdly, the you know you you shouldn't think about um, relics and their efficacy in a kind of quantitative way, as if we had you know like a relic meter and you could pass the relic meter over the relic and you know this one you know this one goes up to seven and. That one go, it goes to eleven. <laughs> you know, I, I wouldn't. I don't think you should think of it in those terms. You know, grace isn't a like a. It's not a substantial quantity like oil in the tank. You know, um, and the the reason we use uh, relics is to connect us to the intercession of the saint, and our own relationship to the saint in prayer, 
And devotion is analogous to our relationship with God. Of course, it's not identical to our relationship with God in that it's their own dis- our own disposition of faith, hope, and charity, which is the more important quantity, if you will. So if you want your life of prayer to be more efficacious, the solution is not to pile up more relics, but to pile up more faith, hope, and charity. Amen. April, thanks so much for your call. In a moment, Paul, also Ben, Elizabeth, and hopefully you at 833-288-EWTN for Call to Communion. Glad you're with us for the Friday edition of Call to Communion here on EWTN. Our phone number, we have two lines open at the moment, 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, 833-288-3986. Before we go back to the phones, a quick question from Matt watching us on YouTube. Dr. Anders, you mentioned on a recent episode that one who dies outside of the church can be united to God through charity. Does that apply also to baptized Catholics who know they should, uh, you know, hang in there? Yeah, right. So if somebody dies at odds with their own conscience, then they would not be dying loving God above all things. Yeah. So to love God above all things means that you are at one with your conscience. You're not at odds in your conscience. And so if you know something to be morally obligatory Mm -hmm. and you do the opposite, um, then that's not living at odds with your conscience. Right, so it's so you you might be describing a kind of metaphysical impossibility here. Now that's different from someone who, um, uh, let's say, somebody may have heard the historical truth that a person should not leave the Catholic faith, but but subjectively in their formation, um, the faith was never presented to them in a way that was compelling, uh-huh. and perhaps even the contrary. Maybe this say this is somebody that was sexually abused by a priest, for example, who has a deep psychological wound that makes it literally impossible for them to conceive of that as a, uh, you know, viably as a truth. Mm-hmm. And just the fact that someone told them that doesn't mean that they're convicted in their conscience in a way that actually moves the will to choose the good. And so, mm-hmm. I, you know, I wouldn't—that's why I'm never in the business of saying that person's going to hell. That's really God's judgment. And, sure. and my and my disposition needs to be charitable towards everybody and recognize that God wants all people to be saved and take the log out of my own eye and not the speck out of theirs and all that good stuff. All right, Matt, thanks for watching us on YouTube this afternoon. Here is Ben, a first-time caller in Athens, Georgia, listening on Athens Catholic Radio. Hello, Ben, what's on your mind today, sir? Hi, I um, had a question from a friend, and I couldn't answer it or couldn't find the answer, so I thought I'd try asking you. Um, I know that prior to the Eucharist being uh, consecrated, there's some water mixed with the wine, and I was wondering if both the water and the wine, when consecrated, become the, the blood of Christ, or just the wine and the blood of Christ is then you know, kind of mixed with water. Yeah, I think. So that's definitely not the way the Church understands it, that, I mean, wine is mostly water already, Yeah. you know, and so it diffuses into the wine, and you just look at the whole thing as wine. So, yeah, you're not you're not getting the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ, and then a small particle of water to boot. Okay. Appreciate that. Ben, thanks so much for your call. Glad you're listening on Athens Catholic Radio. Call to communion here on EWTN. Let's go to Elizabeth now. She is a first-time caller from Bloomfield Hills, Michigan, listening on the great Ave Maria Radio. Elizabeth, what's on your mind today? 
Okay, Dr. Anders, I have a question about uh, St. Phoebe. I understand that she was a deacon or a deaconess in the first century, and I'm just asking about her and her relationship as kind of a rationale for a female uh, deacon, deaconess. Um, yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So the um, uh, the, the word deacon it means servant in Greek, and not every time we find the word used in Scripture does it refer to an ecclesiastical office. And so you can talk about somebody as this person was a servant of the church, and you use that in kind of general sense, that they were helpful. Um, that's different from the use we find in the pastoral epistles where um, uh, where you know where deacon is really set apart as an ecclesiastical office, and th- that form of deaconing uh, the ecclesiastical office as the first grade of the sacrament of holy orders has always been reserved exclusively for men in the church's history, and this is confirmed by magisterial teaching as recently as Pope Francis. All right, Elizabeth, thanks so much uh, for your call. Here is Paul now in Toronto and Ontario, listening on the TuneIn app. Hey there, Paul, what's on your mind today, sir? A pleasure to speak to both of you. Happy Friday. So um, what what did, you know, philosophers like Spinoza, I guess Descartes in there as well, in the, the age of, in quotes, enlightenment, what, what did they get wrong? about God. Um, for Spinoza, and I don't know too much about him, so look, researching a little bit, he wasn't an atheist, but he got something really wrong. I'm not sure whether or not you're able to uh, shed some light on that, Dr. Anders. Um, yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So uh, these guys can't all be lumped into the same category. So Spinoza and Descartes are very different. There's not just one Enlightenment concept of God. Um, so, you know, kind of the, the, the bugbear of Enlightenment philosophy when it comes to natural theology would be uh, the English apologist William Paley. And conspicuously, when Richard Dawkins wrote his book, The God Delusion, and he attacked the notion of God, he really goes after a straw man. He goes after poor old Paley, who everybody <laughs> just keeps on kicking Paley. He's been down a very long time because uh-huh. Paley is the one that gave us the watchmaker analogy. And, and that would be kind of the stereotype of the Enlightenment view of God, that God is the, the deistic God, the God who's over and apart from the universe, who maybe sets it in motion and winds it up like a watch, uh, and, then, and then steps back and, and, and watches it go. And the problem with that analogy is that the, um, it, 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 it seems to contemplate the possibility that nature can kind of go on its own steam, that it has a sort of causation apart from the active presence and being of God. Mm. And, um, and, uh, and, and the, the analogy to artifacts breaks down at a number of points. Now, that's very different from Spinoza's view. Spinoza's view is much similar to, say, something like the Neoplatonic view of God. Now, Spinoza's been called a pantheist before, um, although I'm not sure that's the best way to characterize his views, but Spinoza understood God to be something that uh, pervaded all of reality simultaneously and was was uh, was present in immensity, meaning that you know there wasn't more of God in a mouse than in an elephant. And uh, there's a great book I read on Spinoza's theology this past year. I think it was called Spinoza's Religion, actually, um, or the Religion of Spinoza, something to that uh-huh. effect. And 
you know, the main difference between Spinoza's account, and there are other differences as well, but this is what comes to my memory, and the Catholic view would be that Spinoza's God is <clears throat> is uh, not personally interested in the human race, right? So it's not it's not the fact that, I mean, in some respects, I like Spinoza's God a lot better than William Paley's. It, it has more in common with the, the, the Neoplatonic architecture that is at the base of Catholic philosophical theology. The difference would be that the Catholic God the, becomes incarnate in the person of Jesus mm-hmm. and, and, and answers prayer and performs miracles and cares about the outcome of the human race and has a plan of redemption and provides special revelation and things like that. But, um, but it's in, insofar as what could be known about God from reason alone— I personally don't think Spinoza's all that bad. And I, like I said, among among the Enlightenment thinkers, I'd, I'd rather hold with Spinoza's God than, say, uh, the God of Paley and, and certainly the God of Kant. Um, you know, Kant doesn't think you can know God at all, and he throws God out there as a as a kind of hypothesis to ground morality. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, but again, seems to be kind of radically disconnected from from nature and and our empirical experience of the world. And that's not the way Spinoza sees it at all. Is that uh, helpful for you, Paul? It's satisfying. Thank you for the answer. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Can I ask you a question about uh, William Paley? Did, I, have a, I, feel, I have a feeling a joke is coming. Did he also give us paleontology? He did not. Okay. Just, you know, asking for a friend, okay? Just asking for a friend. Call to communion here on EWTN. Mike is driving through Mississippi this afternoon, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Mike, what's on your mind today, sir? Hey, I just wanted to express my appreciation. I, I, I listen to you every week at this time as I transit back home to the Birmingham area. And I, I really did appreciate the Spinal Tap reference of going to 11. <laughs> in the free-falling Tom Teddy reference. So not only are you very informative and helpful, you're also pretty entertaining. Thank you so much. Aren't you kind? I, I really appreciate that. Thank you so much. What a nice man. Drive carefully out there, you know, Mike. There, there aren't a lot of safe references to Spinal Tap. Not really. But that that's a pretty safe one. Yes. Yeah. No, no caveat emptor necessary. Right. Claire very... Carlyle. Claire Carlyle. Spinoza's Religion. That was the book I referenced. Claire Carlyle. Yeah, Spinoza's Religion by Claire Carlyle. I, I recommend it if you're interested in Spinoza. Very good. All right. Uh, uh, this is the last call for your call at 833-288-EWTN. If you call right now, we can hopefully get you on today's program. 833-288-3986. One of the, my favorite programs, because I'm kind of an old cornball here, is uh, Family Theater Classic Radio that we bring you every weekend here on EWTN, uh, Sunday night, 11.30 p.m. Eastern. This, you know, Family Theater brings you voices from Hollywood's Golden Age. These programs were originally broadcast, oh, back in the 40s and 50s uh, on the Mutual Network, if you may remember that. Just some classic sound effects, full orchestra, some of the great actors. Uh, this week's show is The Juggler of Our Lady. That's uh, portrayed by the one and only Danny Thomas. John Lund will be the narrator for that program. Again, check it out. Family Theater Classic Radio, Sunday night, 11.30 p.m. Eastern, right here on EWTN Radio. Uh, Kind of a sad email that we received earlier this week. This is from Jane in North Dakota. Dr. Anders, a neighbor just passed away at home from cancer at the, quote, young age of 60. Everyone feels so badly for him and his family, he completely withered away to 80 pounds. As any human can imagine, this is gut-wrenching to watch. 
I always look for any religious help and answers. Are there any other than human suffering? What benefits can we learn from this? Our human nature has many built-in benefits to help us all, but this dying process at times is so very agonizing. Dr. Anders, I listen to you almost daily. Thank you for being you. And again, that's from Jane in North Dakota. Yeah, Jane, I appreciate the question. Um, dying's a bummer. Oh, yeah. It's terrible stuff, and I don't want to do it, and I don't like watching it happen to people that I care about, and I'm, I'm very sympathetic. And, you know, I can give you an academic answer that is totally unsatisfying, except in an academic way, and that is that God allows suffering to bring out of it a greater good. That's the Catholic position. I fully acknowledge that we often do not see the greater good, and that, that answer is cold comfort when you're in the midst of horrific suffering. And as somebody who's been through some tough times myself, I recognize how empty it can feel when you're in the midst of it. And ironically, I take comfort from the fact that biblical revelation acknowledges the confusion and validates it. So my favorite psalm is probably Psalm 88, which is the only psalm in the Bible that says that God is absent and and he's doing nothing good, and the psalmist can see no evidence of his existence, and he is totally bummed out. The end. The end. That's the psalm, right? And uh, But he's praying it. Yeah. Yeah. He's praying it. He's praying his sense of alienation and abandonment. Um, he's, uh, he's mad at God, and he's telling God about it. And um, I was interviewing a seminarian from my diocese for a local podcast a couple months back, and he told me a story that uh, you've probably heard before. It's the sort of thing I imagine has been passed around, but it was new to me, um, about uh, a woman who had a loss and lost somebody that she loved in the hospital, and she was in a Catholic hospital, and and um, and she went outside, and there was a statue of our Lord, and she started beating up the statue of Jesus. Really? Kicking it and screaming, yelling, punching it, and wailing and crying and blaming him and all saying all kinds of nasty things. Wow. And uh, and there was a security guard or some staff person who went to stop her, and there was a religious sister who was standing nearby, and she mm-hmm. puts her hand out and grabs the security guard and says, Stop! Don't do that. She's praying. Wow. And the wisdom of that sister. What insight. You know, I mean, that, and it, it's okay to feel that way. Yeah. That's my point, is that mm-hmm. in sacred scripture, that sentiment is acknowledged and, and, and inspired scriptural writing puts it in there for us to identify with. And uh, it doesn't help us come to answers so much, but it can help us come to profound empathy. And, and you know, the old saying that suffering either makes you bitter or better is true. It's true. And you can come out the other side of that kind of thing um, uh, far less dogmatic uh, and, and far more compassionate mm. towards other people who suffer. And then you, you suddenly realize when push comes to suffer, what really matters is can I be present to people in their pain and bear that burden with them, maybe not come with an answer to every problem, but with, uh, but with uh, you know, loving attention and care and solicitude and the things that we deeply crave. And, you know, when I've sat at the bedside of people that I love who are dying, um, you know, it's horrifying. It's, 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 it's agonizing, but I've also had some of the most tender and beautiful moments of my entire life. And, you know, watching the death of my father, um, you know, the last few weeks of his life were horrifically painful to me, but I wouldn't trade them for anything in the world. You know, I mean, they're they're seared into my memory with such profound significance. And his own heroic witness to the suffering he underwent, you know, like Isaiah says of the Lord, that a a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. That was how my dad was. He wasn't 
breaking any reeds or snuffing any wicks. He he bore it manfully and courageously. I said, Dad, you know, you're, you're going to die soon. How do you feel about that? He said, well, I'm going to go when the Lord wants me to go, but as long as I can be useful to my family, I'm happy to stick around, and I think I'm useful, so I'm sticking around as long as I can. Wow. And then he... Um, he, um, he, he, we were with him one night. It was March of 2020, and he was with us one moment, and then he wasn't. Jane, thank you so much uh, for your email. We'll certainly keep you in our prayers and for your neighbor as well. Call to communion here on EWTN. Bob is a first-time caller in St. Louis, listening online, EWTN.com. Hey there, Bob. What's on your mind today, sir? Hi, um... I come from a Lutheran and Baptist background, and um, I just stumbled across EWTN radio in my vehicle mm-hmm. uh, within the last month, and I feel like I'm just kind of creeping the door open a little to the inner sanctum. Like, this is, I've understood in this past month more about Catholicism than I ever have. But it's such a vast sea, and so my question to start in my journey today is, I picked up a copy of, because it was highly referenced, An Introduction to the Devout Life by St. Francis de Sales, mm-hmm. and so much throughout there, he talks about charity, it, and I know I've heard on the radio before that Catholicism is not a works-based religion, but just going through so much reference that he has there about charity, and I was just wondering if you could expound on that. Oh, yeah. Somewhat, yeah. versus yeah. just faith. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks, Bob. I really appreciate the question, and, and I'm, I'm so glad you stumbled on Catholic Radio, and what a great choice to pick up St. Francis de Sales. I'm really gratified to hear you say that. So let's get clear about what the term charity means. Um, in, in modern contemporary American English, charity often means the work done by a nonprofit 501c3. You know, I'm going to mm. give money to charity. And uh-huh. That means, you know, I'm going to, you know, drop a coin in the Salvation Army bucket and yeah. maybe buy socks for poor kids or something like that. It means, you know, good works of giving alms to the poor. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about that at all. We're talking about the Latin word caritas. Uh, it comes from the same Greek word from which we get the word grace. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, what we're talking about here is a disposition in the soul, not, not a thing that I do, but a disposition in the soul that, is, that desires the good of my neighbor for the sake of God and to be in union with my neighbor. So the way you feel about your wife, perhaps, you know, you, you really want her to flourish, you want the best for her, and you'd like to be there along with her while she's flourishing and be a participant in that. And, uh, and you can love your wife, well, you know, I don't recommend it, but you can love your wife without getting out of bed in the morning, you know, and if you're handicapped and maybe bedridden like my dad was when he was dying, he couldn't get out of bed in the morning, but he could sit there and sort of beam goodwill at my mother, you know. That's what we mean by charity, the way you feel about your children. Now, charity, of course, is going to eventuate in all kinds of tangible good deeds, but it's not the good deeds as such. You could do the same good deeds without the disposition. They wouldn't mean anything like the same thing. It's that disposition to really to desire the good of your neighbor. Love is a synonym for charity. And, and uh, see, in the Catholic way of looking at things, that is God. That is God's nature. St. John says God is love. God is this, this just unqualified, infinite, 
disposition to do good and to be good, and he just diffuses goodness infinitely in all directions to everything. And in fact, you know, to exist is good, and we exist insofar as we exist in God. St. Paul says, in him we live and move and have our being. And, uh, and he, you think of God on the analogy of the sunlight. You know, it's sitting there just beaming in every direction, giving life and, and, uh, and joy to everything that it comes into contact with. And the soul can put up an umbrella, as it were, and block out the light of the sun and live in darkness, and that's kind of sad. Or you can open up to it, let that light penetrate you and be transformed by it until you warm up. You sit in the sun too long, you're going to get hot, you know. <clears throat> yeah. And, uh, and the life of Catholicism is about opening up to that infinite source of divine goodness, which is God himself, and letting it warm the soul so that we become like him in that charity. And then, you know how uh, uh, when we were kids, we used to have these little plastic toys, and they would be kind of like an off-green color, and you'd hold them up to your incandescent light bulb for like five minutes. Then you could turn the light off and they'd glow. Oh, yeah. Right? That's a really good analogy for what the Catholic soul is like. Mm. We try to hold them up to the bright light of God's luminescence and catch a bit of those rays, and then we ourselves become little lights. Jesus said, be you know, be salt, be light in the world. Let your light shine before men. And we want to reflect that goodness and that love and that being of God to other people. And that's what salvation is. That, that's what it means to be in relationship with God. Um, St. Cyril of Jerusalem used the analogy of putting iron in a fire. Uh, and, uh, and the iron heats up until it begins to glow like the fire itself. That's that's what it means to be in relationship with God, is to let the fire of God's love fire you up, and you begin to glow like him. That's what we mean by charity. That's that's what Catholic life is all about. And and that charity in the soul is a spark of the divine, and is the, it is the seed of eternal life begun. So if you have that disposition in your soul, you're in relationship with God. When you die, you'll continue that relationship with God for all eternity. Bob, thanks so much for your call. You've got some great assets right there in the St. Louis area. A Covenant Network has uh, two radio stations in the St. Louis area off the top of my head. I believe it's uh, AM 1080 and AM 1460, so you may want to check them out uh, as well. Bob, thanks so much for your call. Here's an anonymous emailer who says, I was dwelling on the words wrath of God the other day, and we talked about this earlier. It's an odd phrase to me because it seems to picture a God with fluctuating emotions, which is a human trait, not a divine one. My mind fixed on two scenarios that helped make sense of it to me. In the first one, a parent puts a fragile and sentimental piece of art on the coffee table and warns the toddler not to touch it. I know this is silly. The child then breaks it, The parent is angry because he or she has lost something of value and feels hurt. This is not God's wrath. Nothing we can do deprives God of anything. In the second scenario, a parent is baking food in the oven, which is very hot. The parent warns the toddler not to touch the oven door, but the child reaches out anyway. The parent reacts with a loud, angry voice because the child is doing something that will hurt the child. The parent's anger is a tool to motivate the child to avoid getting hurt. This is more akin to God's wrath in that God is always opposed to us hurting ourselves by sinning. His wrath is not an emotion that comes and goes, but a constant opposition to sin combined with an equally constant concern for our well-being. What do you think, Dr. Andrews? I think that's great. I, I like the contrast between the two ways of picturing God's wrath, and I like your second way a lot better than the first way, just as you do. <laughs> and, um, I, I, you know, in my own way I think about this, and I'm trying to think with the Church here, when we talk about God's wrath, we're talking about my capacity to be alienated from God. 
Mm. So it's not, it doesn't represent a change in God's attitude towards me. You know, God doesn't pass from love to wrath. Um, rather, God is always uniformly love, but I have the capacity to shut off my receptivity to that love uh-huh. so that I experience my own dissolution. I can, I can degrade my personality so that I become more and more with, at war with myself and my own nature and, and, and descend into a kind of living hell because I'm alienating myself from the source of integral goodness. Okay. And thanks so much for your anonymous email. Here's one now from Barry in West Virginia, who is a new Catholic. Barry says, as a new Catholic, how do I change my thinking on miraculous medals as being an amulet and bowing to the Bible as odd and all the things that are new that don't quite feel natural just yet? Any suggestions? Yeah, thank you. I appreciate the question. So you're under no obligation to make use of miraculous medals, first of all. So all, all devotions in the Catholic Church based upon private revelations are purely optional, and, uh, and, and they're, not, they're not matters of, uh, of Catholic faith. You don't, have to have super, you don't have to have divine and supernatural faith in the efficacy of miraculous medals. So if they're a stumbling block for you right now, well, put them aside, and we'll come back to those later. Bowing um, in Mass and showing reverence to the words of, of, uh, of our Lord, that's different, right? Because the Mass is obligatory on all Catholics, and we have to follow the rubrics of the Church. Um, now, to... We venerate the Bible mm-hmm. because it is the Word of God. Mm-hmm. And keep in mind, we're not venerating uh, wood pulp and, right. and ink. Right. We're venerating the revealed Word of God. So, you know, if the priest read the thing off his iPad, which I wouldn't recommend, right, it would still be the proclaimed Word of God that we're venerating. And again, we're not venerating the, the sound waves passing through the air. Yeah. We're venerating the revelation of God that comes through that medium. All right. And uh, Barry in West Virginia, thanks so much for your email. I'm, I'm glad that we could uh, get to that today. Dr. David Anders, have a great weekend. Thanks, Tom. We do this program Monday through Friday here on EWTN Radio at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. Check out the podcast by going to EWTN.com slash radio. Look for the words Podcast Central. On behalf of our fantastic team, I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Anders. You have a great weekend as well. See you Monday here on Call to Communion. Have a great one. God bless.